Oh, what a great song to start the programme this week. It is impossible not to smile whenever yes, that it comes on. It is on. good fun indeed, good yes. Good morning, Richard. Mary Poppins, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Yes, don't try and say it backwards, it's too early in the morning. <laughs> no, indeed. Good morning, Daniel, great to have you along. Good to be back. And the reason we started with that is because it's going to be on at the Maltings in Berwick tomorrow morning at half past ten. So all you, all you uh, younger ones out there who've not seen it, you've really got to go up and see it. It's uh, on at 10.30 tomorrow morning. Tickets are £2.50 if you book in advance, £3 on the day. And those two and under get in free. No excuses, then. Yes. I remember the first time I went to see that. The film had just come out and I was staying with my, my aunt just south of Birmingham and uh, she took me and... Uh, several elderly ladies from the local Methodist church to, uh, to see it and... Uh, well, I loved it. I wasn't quite sure what they thought of it, but I, I, I just loved it. So they go out saying, oh, it's absolutely scandalous. Yes. How can they show this sort of yes. thing to children? Right. Lots going on at the uh, Maltings, so should we have a quick whiz through Yeah, let's them? do the Maltings first, yes. since we started with um, This afternoon, they have got your favourite film, The Smurfs. <laughs> it's horrible. It's out of the top ten and right. good for it. Right. Tonight at uh, seven o'clock, it's Cowboys and Aliens. Which, no, good title. I like the two main stars, Harrison Ford and Daniel Craig, but after the initial appeal of the title goes, it doesn't really have anything else to offer. Okay. Tomorrow afternoon, 2.30, is Cars 2. <sighs> Which is disappointing because it's as though John Lasseter made it for himself rather than for the fans. I hope that it's just a little blip because Pixar have such a high quality of output. I'm looking forward to their new one, though, which okay. is uh, coming out later this year. Monday night, this should be a cracking film. Half Price Monday, it's Senna. Which is still the best documentary that's been released this year. You know, it's directed by Asif Kapadia, who is shaping up to be a really great director. And I don't think you have to be interested in Formula One to find it riveting. It should be good. It's yes. really great. Yeah. Tuesday at uh, one o'clock and seven thirty is one day, which is a little disappointing. I mean. I don't doubt that the novel has its own charm, and I don't think Anne Hathaway's English accent is anything like as atrocious as people are saying. The problem is that once you get past the very contrived structure of the meeting on the same day for 20 years, it's a very ordinary story. Yeah. And then finally, on Wednesday, 8 o'clock, it is The Change-Up. Which is equally rubbish. Go and watch either version of Freaky Friday instead and save your money. Right. Mort uh, Playhouse in Annick, just the one film this week. I'm uh, having to do everything by web this week because somehow we haven't got a gazette in here. But uh, anyway, it's uh, tonight and it's going to be, oh, one day as well. Yeah. And that's on at 1 o'clock and 7.30 as well. Annick 510785 if you would like to get tickets for that. Shall we do the top ten now? I think we should. Right. Warrior at number 10. Which is very entertaining. I mean, like all of the Rocky films from sort of Rocky 3 onwards, I'm not going to do my Sylvester Stallone impression again, although you said you quite liked it. As with those sort of films, the opening section involving the setup of the characters and how they get back into the ring, it's very contrived and very cliched. But once they get into the ring and start, you no know, kicking seven bells out of each other, it is entertaining because and Tom Hardy does look good with his shirt off. Right. What's your number at number nine? Which isn't as funny as it needs to be. I mean, I like the central conceit of it, which is, you know, how is it that men can have so many sexual partners and that boost their ego, whereas if women do that, they're disrespectful. And I think Anna Faris has very good comic timing, but... It's just a little bit too flat and predictable to suit her. 
At number eight, we've got Drive. Which is really good. No, Nick Winding, I think, it, or Vinding Refn, as I think people have been calling him, uh, he's, made a, he's essentially made an upmarket B-movie with A-list visuals. No, it's an exploitation film with existentialism, which looks back to things like Vanishing Point and the work of Charles Bronson. I think it's on a par with Refn's best work in the Pusher trilogy back in the 90s, so if you go back a little bit. Um, but yeah, Ryan Gosling is very, very good, and it's good fun. Uh, number seven, the film that won't go away, The Inbetweeners. It's taken... It, extravagant amounts of money and it's doing it, remarkably well it is it? yeah and you could sort of rub it in the well, more it stays in I, mean, <laughs> I, I i do think it's derivative but then again i'm not a fan of the tv series so therefore i no, i can't say how well it lives up to that and i do think no if you want if you want the positive review go back in the podcast and listen to lewis denny but tune out when he starts talking about the social network because he is dead wrong about that <laughs> there's another 3d film at number six shark night it's garbage i mean it's not terrifying enough to be like jaws and it's not gory enough to be like the Italian knockoffs of Jaws that came out in the 80s. You know, the 3D is pointless. Don't waste your money. Number five, we've got The Debt. Which is a decent, if slightly unremarkable <laughs> thriller from John Madden, who made Shakespeare in Love, which, you know, along, which, you know, when people ask you what is the definition of a decent film, and a film that's neither good nor bad, the usual ones that come up are either Shakespeare in Love or Pretty Woman, because they're sort of, mm, fine. Um, I like... No, the 60s stuff in there with the, with the Cold War, and no, that's more interesting than the present-day stuff with Helen Mirren. I like the fact that it's a political thriller which actually has ideas and wants to say something. I think it's a bit unfortunate that it came out just a week after Tinker Taylor, because that's by far the superior film, but it's all right. Okay, number four, Crazy Stupid Love. Again, not as funny as it needs to be. It desperately wants to be Love Actually, which is not aiming all that high, but it doesn't... <laughs> no, I like Richard Curtis as a writer, don't get me wrong, but as a director, he is a bit all over the place, and there are too many stories in that film. Um, it doesn't have the charm or the quality of Richard Curtis' writing. There's not enough for Julianne Moore to do, so it's, it's okay, but it's entirely in one ear and out the other. Number three, Phantom of the Opera. This is odd because it's not really a film. A lot of cinemas nowadays, but including the Tyneside in Newcastle, are doing things where they will do streamed performances. Oh right, of so it's, it is a live um, yeah. opera in Italy or somewhere. Yeah, well, in this case, I think it's it was from um, it was either from the Royal Albert Hall or somewhere in the West yeah. End where they'll have sort of cameras set yes. up and, and they'll sort of stream it live over the internet and the cinemas will have a feed yeah. that will take it straight onto the screen. And apparently Michael Crawford turned up at the end and did a bit of dancing. So for people of a certain age, so. It's, what do you say? It's not really a film. It, it's something that probably won't be around next week. Yeah. And you can't exactly catch it because it's finished. Yes. So it's very odd. It's quite a few of my uh, friends go to watch the big Italian high operas, Verona and things, because they're beamed back to um, to the Tyneside. And they always say how good it is. Do they go in full sort of garb with opera glasses? Um, I don't know about the opera glasses, but I think they, they do dress up reasonably smartly and drink champagne and things. Yeah, because you can't sit, because if you go into the classic screening at the Tyneside, which has got the circle, you can sort of sit on the balcony and pretend that you've got a box for only six quid fifty. So I guess that, that would appeal. That's great fun, doesn't yes. it? Yes. You've got me thinking about The Godfather Part 3 yes. now. Number two, absolutely slated by the critics, Abduction. Yeah, I don't think it's quite as awful as the critics on Rotten Tomatoes would have us believe. I mean, the director, John Singleton, has been going down, he's been off the boil for many, many years, and it is deeply generic and derivative, but I'm sure that there are plenty of young people who are the target audience who will you know, go and see it simply because Taylor Lautner does look good running around with his shirt off. And no Number one, definitely on the boil, is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Which is still one of the best films of this year. It's you no, know, it fulfills the promise of Let the Right One In. I don't think it's quite up there with Thomas Alfredson's first film because that was absolutely extraordinary. It's it's atmospheric, it's substantial, it's weighty, it's intelligent. Gary Oldman is fantastic. It's very slightly flawed, and I think you might have more mixed feelings about it if you have, as you and I both have, an affection for the TV series. Yeah. But 
please go and see it because it's a very smart, very slow-burning but great thriller. So, recommendations this week, then. Obviously, that one. Take your tailor, Soldier Spy. Um, the Debt and Drive would be the other ones. Yes. Or Warrior, if you want a sort of guilty pleasure smash fest. And if you're of a certain age, you definitely can't miss Mary Poppins tomorrow morning. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't have to because I saw it about 20 times when I was younger because we had it on Didn't VHS. we all? Didn't we all? Yes. <laughs> Consummate viewing. Yes, it is great. And uh, Dick Van Dyke and that dreadful accent. Chim chimmy. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the district's newest radio station, Lionheart Radio. Yes, Halloween's on its way to get us into the mood, sort of. Bobby Boris Pickett and the Monster Mash. Yes, because... Great party for Halloween. Sorry, great song for Halloween parties. Get your words in the right order. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, we're playing that because um, we've got another three shows after this in October, so we thought we would do a horror month from here on in, uh, slowly building up to uh, October the 29th, which will be a Halloween special. And I won't be here. I'm afraid not. We'll, we'll have the one and only Paul Young will be out of retirement yes, for it. Yes, it'll be too scary for you. So you're <laughs> no, <going> on <laughs> I should be at home. No, I won't be at home, actually. I wish she's somewhere else with my teddy bear being very scared. <laughs> so we'll kick off Horror Month with Wakewood, which is a, a recent uh, cult entry. It's a low-budget Irish-English horror movie, which was made in 2009, but it only got released uh, last March, or March this year. Um, part of the reborn Hammer Stable, which has uh, already produced things like the remake of Let the Right one in so sort of tying it in with Tinker Taylor and next February we'll be giving us The Woman in Black with Daniel Radcliffe that should be good yeah and it, fortunately it's, it, they thought it was going to be made in 3D but they've decided at the last minute not to do it so it's just going to be in good old fashioned flat and all the all atmospheric I've seen that on stage it's fantastic on I, stage yeah, it'll I'm, be interesting to see it in mm, film I remember going to see The Woman in Black because when I did UCSC drama we used to go to the Regent Theatre in Stoke once a term to see a play and I remember seeing The Woman in Black and being so terrified by it that I couldn't move from my seat they actually had to prise my hands off the armrests. Yep, I went to see it at the uh, Theatre by the Lake in Keswick. Same thing. I think it's one of the few few plays I've genuinely been scared by. Yes. It's so no. very good. So yeah. should be really good when that hits the screen. Yeah, well, we, if we're still on the air by February, <laughs> we'll definitely cover <laughs> yes. it. So directed by David Keating, who cut his teeth in the mid-1980s as an assistant director on the adaptation of 1984, directed by Michael Radford, um, uh, with the central performance of John Hurt and the last ever performance by Richard Burton. And then... There are various stories surrounding Burton's health on that film because of the fact that the most famous one being that he was so so ill because of his lifetime of smoking and alcoholism that he actually had to wear a neck brace underneath his you know, the famous boiler suit that he wears and he was, yeah. he, he didn't look good but also but that sort of added because of the fact that he was playing O'Brien who is who is the traitor at 1984 yeah. so it, it, you know very good performance and of course that had the the great tagline of 1984 the year of the film the film of the year. <laughs> So, the plot summary of Wakewood, I mean, I couldn't find exactly how much it cost, but it wasn't much, for reasons that will become clear. The plot is that there's a young couple called Patrick and Louise. Uh, Patrick's played by Aidan Gillen, who was recently in Blitz, and uh, Louise is played by Eva Berthesel. And they are grieving the loss of their young daughter, played by a very good performance by Ella Colony, who, in the beginning of the film, we find out has been mauled to death by a dog in a rather gruesome yeah. scene. And they move to a remote part of Ireland called Wakewood, and uh, Patrick works as a vet on a local farm while Louise runs the local pharmacy, but there is still the sense that they are, or at least she is, still grieving very deeply for their child, and they, she, she doesn't want to move on, and she, in particular, doesn't want to try for another baby because she can't deal with, you know, even seeing children sets her off. One day, Patrick's employer called Arthur, who's played by Timothy Spall, comes to them and says, I can bring your daughter back to life for three days. If Would that help you know, 
to, for you to say goodbye to her. So after arguing, they agreed to take part in this macabre pagan ritual. I use pagan in inverted commas again for reasons that will become clear, involving the local woods. And they get their daughter back on the condition that they can't take her outside the boundaries of the village and that if she is still alive after the third day, bad stuff is going to happen. And in, as, you know, as yeah. you know, inevitably it does, because that's the way that these films work. The revival of the Hammer brand is a cause for triumph and tribulation amongst horror fans. I mean, there is the obvious danger of nostalgia. I remember when, remember when we talked about um, Kronos and we went through sort of the history of vampire films. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned that you have a great affection for the old Hammers of the 50s oh, and yes. 60s. Yes. And it's hard not to. Yes. And, you know, but you have, we have to sort of accept that those days of sort of Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee and Charles Gray are gone yes. for better or worse. Slightly camp, but good fun. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the very existence of the Hammer brand, you know, being revived and actually being stable in the sense that it has produced a few films, indicates that there is a, you know, a bright, a bright future for sort of low-budget horror filmmaking. And for British filmmaking. Exactly, because people can use the brand and its reputation to get the films the yeah. attention that they deserve. I mean, it's, there's an argument that the hardest thing about British filmmaking is not actually making the films, it's getting them distributed because yeah. of the way that multiplex culture means that big blockbusters from America will play on eight screens and there'll only be one left for sort of independent films screen once a day. So, if you compare this to Let Me In, whatever your feelings on sort of Let Me In, and I, I have to say I wasn't a big fan of it, there was a feeling watching it that it wasn't really a proper Hammer film. It just happened to be a film that Hammer were distributing yeah. in the UK because it, it didn't have the, the sort of thing that you were talking about, the Hammer style, which is no, slightly camp, but into, it's no, slightly camp, slightly creaky, very strikingly coloured. Because you know, remember the, thing, the original version of Dracula where you have those sort of almost jello-like reds going through Yes, it, indeed. And Jonathan yes, Harker. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's that marriage between, on the one hand, the Hollywood studio conventions, you know, pioneered by people like Val Luton in the 40s, who made sort of Curse of the Cat people. And on the other hand, European Grand Guignol, which is more theatrical and more sort of oriented yeah. by blood and guts. And you sort of bring the two together and do it in a distinctly British way with the likes of Charles Gray and Peter Cushing and a smock. So, although Let Me In isn't really a Hammer film, Wakewood is Hammer through and through, while still being very much a product of the 21st century in the way that it's funded. I mean, whereas the old Hammer films were, they were churned, it, you know, Hammer was effectively a factory which would churn out Dracula sequel after Dracula yeah. sequel. You know, Christopher Lee famously complained that they made too many. Oh, and now he said, I've only ever done three horror films, which is a blatant <laughs> lie. <laughs> yeah. So, whereas the old Hammer of the 50s and 60s was like that of just, you no, know, let's make as many films as we can yeah. for as little money as possible so that there's always a mm. horror film showing at yeah. your local cinema on a Friday night. This is just a case of a lot of little disparate production companies throwing, saying, we'll give you a little bit of money and then on the grounds that we can use the brand yeah. to get the attention. I mean, it's the price we have to pay for low-budget films these days. And to give you an idea of just how many little pots, I'm just going to read you the opening credits. Hammer and exclusive film distribution present, in association with Vertigo Films Distribution, with the participation of the Irish Film Board, a fantastic films production in co-production with Solid Entertainment, with Film Ice Gain, made with the support of the Swedish Film Institute, in association with RTE, present Wakewood. Yes. And I mean, it takes us about a minute to get More and more like that each day, doesn't it? Yes. Once you break away from the big Hollywood producers, that yes. it does seem to be consorted, doesn't it? I mean, Northern Film, film and Media are involved in trying to get films to come to the Northeast, and because mm. they all need um, seed capital to encourage them up to this lovely part of the world. And, exactly. And some of them do remarkably well. Yeah. Um, so it's obviously very successful, but it always seems to have to be these consortia these days, doesn't it? Yeah, so, like I say, it, it is the price we pay, but no, it has. 
No, it's the lesser of two evils than just just having sort of mainstream dross all the time. Yeah. I and mean, not all the mainstream is dross, don't get me wrong, but uh, I mean, uh, I'll insert a plug while I'm at it. If you're interested in sort of <coughs> seeing low-budget films actually made in the Northeast, the place you need to go to is the Side Cinema on the quayside in Newcastle, which screens films. I think it's every Tuesday night, and they have sort of seasons programmed of local filmmakers. I think recently they actually interviewed Mike Hodges, so I wish I'd gotten there. So... From a horror point of view, Wakewood does have a, a number of very prominent horror references, and they're so prominent that I think even you, who's not a yeah. committed horror fan, would be able to spot them. I mean, there is a big reference through all of this of Don't Look Now, because it's the classic story of a couple who are grieving for their daughter. There is sort of mention of, you know, the colour red in the girl's yeah. vision, and there is a sort of, there is an immediate nod to Don't Look Now in the sequence where um, Alice, the young girl, is walking through the woods in a raincoat, but in a slightly twist, so it's yellow raincoat rather than red, just so not to be too obvious. There are also obviously big hints of the Wicker Man because it's, you know, it's about people chancing on the pagan community, although it's not yeah. actually pagan because, you know, the Wicker Man's depiction of pagan culture is, you no know, it, it departs from the, from the truth somewhat, but <laughs> that's, in the case of the Wicker Man, that's not important. I mean, sometimes, sometimes the references to those two films are so marked that it does feel like someone went to see the original double bill because Wicker Man and Don't Look Now were released together in 1973 and it's almost as if they went and thought there was one film and thought well that was great I'll do my own version <laughs> sort of put them together yeah. so there are also little sort of minor references I mean the kind of central story of you know be careful what you wish for goes back to things like Monkey's Paw the novel by W.W. W. Jacobs and there is a passing reference to Stephen King's Cujo which is his novel about uh, a, a rabid dog attacking a family trapped in a car which was sort of do you remember the Disney film Old Yeller no, about no, no, I like, don't. And the young boy and his dog, directed by the guy who made Mary Poppins, you no, know, right. sort of a few years yeah. ago. You know, a young boy growing up on a farm who you know, develops this relationship with the dog, and it has a very, you know, in sort of classic, you no know, fairy tale Disney style. It ends with him having to shoot the dog because he gets rabies. Yeah, and it's you no. Know, lots of people have read into Cujo being sort of Stephen King's very warped take on Old Yeller. It's like, you know, taking all the stuff in Old Yeller, which was quite charming and sweet, yeah. and saying, no, actually, let's make it really nasty. <laughs> No, classic Stephen yeah. King thing. So, in, depending on your familiarity and attitude towards horror, you'll either find Wakewood immensely derivative or very conscious of its place within a genre. It's a very modest film. It's not a film which says, we're going to come in with our little bit of money, we're going to move the goalposts, we're going to change the face of horror. It's saying, well, no, we know all these you know, films that are admired and we know that we... Because we haven't got the resources, we, we can't be that ambitious, but we think that there, are, there is a way of telling a slightly different, interesting story within the confines of no yeah. imagery that you recognise, and I think it's, it's not derivative in that sense. The first half of the film is rather generic and very slow-burning. You've got very washed-out visuals and fairly standard camera work, simple editing, you know, there isn't a great deal in the dialogue to pull you in. And there is some pleasure from the film of seeing all the little bits fit together and you know, seeing the couple moving into Wakewood, which is like, you know, Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland, you know, getting in, you know, moving into Venice and him getting started on the church. Yeah. And so, you remember those sorts of scenes in Don't Look Now. But you do feel, after you've got about halfway through, it's like, yes, I recognise all these films which I really like, now you've got to actually make your mark on it in yourself. It's interesting for a film that is situated so much in what's called the lost child end of horror. In, you know, horror films which are you know, very much ideas-driven, which are about grief and about loss yeah. and despair and so forth. For a film that's situated very much in that tradition, there is a surprising amount of gore. Um, there are sort of little pockets throughout, some of which are you know, contextual and some of which are deliberately trying to shock. It's like the thing that Stephen King said, that horror films will try and terrify you. If they can't terrify you, they'll horrify you. And if they can't ter horrify you, they'll just gross you out and I'll go up for whatever works because I'm not picky. <laughs> yeah. um, 
so there are some graphic scenes in the film. I mean, there is a sequence where Patrick, played by Aidan Gillen, performs a cesarean section on a cow. I mean, you don't see everything, but no, for people... Probably as well. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it is a bit squeamish. I mean, it's an 18 certificate film, so yeah. no, you, you go in expecting a fair amount of blood. There is a member, I mean, the, for gorehounds out there, gorehounds being people who sort of, who act actively seek out sort of inventive deaths in horror films, you know, spend a lot of time watching Lucia Fulci and Gaspar Noe, those sorts of things. There is a sort of a very inventive death involving a man being crushed to death by the back end of a bull against a metal gate. But that's about as sort of <laughs> odd as it gets. I know, you can, you can yeah. feel squeamish, but, you know, as with a lot of the films I've talked about on this slot, like, for instance, um, Angel Heart, which we talked about four or five months ago, in the end, most of the gore does bring out one of the main ideas of the film, which is the circle of life, although not the circle of life in The Lion King, which we'll come to a little bit later. It's yeah. a bit more macabre than that. This, you have a film which presents the circle of birth, life and death and possible rebirth because there is sort of reincarnation or zombification yeah. involved. It's presented as, no, you remember that there's a quote about sort of, no, life is like a sliver of light between two immensities of darkness. Yeah. Well, it's saying, you know, life is a happy interval between two incidences of absolute agony. Yeah. Because you have the sequence where Alice is being brought back to life, where effectively they have taken, they have dug up a corpse from the woods and then crushed it using some farm equipment and then sort of, you know, covering it in mud and so forth yeah. and, you know, casting a magic spell and then Alice is sort of born from that, which is very macabre and very gruesome and very strange. I mean, if you saw John Landis's Birkin Hair, in which it was, you know, about sort of the real-life murderers kind of throwing people downstairs and sitting on Christopher Lee's face to kill him and then snapping his bones to put him in a barrel, it's like that, but without the jokes, because there are sort of right, moments yeah. of snapping and sort of things where you just go, but in a good way. So you have, after the agony of you know, birth where Alice comes back to them for three days, you have you know, the time shared by them being one of complete joy because whereas those sections, of the, whereas the earlier sections of the film, like I say, are very washed out, very murky, very, very sort of 70s looking, those sections with Alice and sort of running around with her parents in the garden and so forth, it's, it's like someone has just magically turned all the lights on and it's shut like, you know, something like Little Miss Sunshine in which it's all yellows and blues yeah, and everyone's yeah. smiling. It's, it feels almost like you've wandered into another film, but not quite. I mean, at its heart, you have, you know, a film which is about a couple struggling to come to terms with you know, grief and being unable to let go of their daughter, both on a physical and a spiritual yeah. level. And like all the best horror films, it is not about... It's, the story is not about how gross we can be. It's not about how bloody we can be. It's saying, let's use the language of horror of, you know, pagan rituals and, mis and mysterious words and blood and guts, let's face it, to explore the issues like grief, like loss, and like despair in a way which is far more emotionally arresting than, you no know, sort of more sanitized yeah. mansion cousins. I mean, if you compare this to a film like... Well, more recently, Rabbit Hole, in which it was Aaron Eckhart and Nicole Kidman grieving over the loss of their young son. No, very same sort of setup, very same you know, balance of characters, and that the man wants to move on, but the woman can't. And you know, there's a sequence in that film of them going to a, a focus group, and uh, one of the other couples says, you "No, know, they took our son away because you no know, God just needed another angel." And Nicole Kidman says, "Well, why couldn't he just make one then? I mean, he's God." But the point about <laughs> yeah. that film is that it feels too too choreographed, too hermetically sealed to be genuine, so it does end up with effectively two rich people moaning for two hours, and you just go, well... What's the point? Exactly, yeah. I'm just not arrested by this. Whereas with Wakewood, even though it is drifting into very sort of gory territory, almost on the border of Lucio Fulci, and I'm not a Fulci fan at all, there is that central idea going all the way through it, and you have the emotional res resonance to sustain you, so if you're not a fan of gore, you can put up with it. Yeah. In terms of the performances, the central couple are very convincing. I mean, you have, like I say, 
the central dynamic lifted from Don't Look Now in the sense that Eva Bertha still has that Julie Christie quality about her. Because, no, remember Julie Christie in something like um, The Go-Between? Yeah. Or, I suppose, going a little further back, um, Dr. Zhivago, in which there's... She's very, very beautiful, but there's that sort of distant quality to her, a sense of being secretly tormented. I mean, that's maybe less so in The Go-Between, but, but Eva Bertha still just has that sensation of... Everything's all right on the surface, but there's just the odd glance in her eye, which leads you to think that she's deeply traumatised by what's going on. Yeah. Because would you have seen Don't Look Now first time round? Don't think so, no. 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 But, uh, yeah. It, I, don't, I don't remember it anyway. Yeah. And then, so on the so you have that on the other side. On the other hand, you have Aidan Gillen doing the Donald Sutherland role in Don't Look Now, which is just, no, oh, pull yourself together. You know, I love you to pieces, but we've got to move on. And in this case, it's instead of going off to Venice to renovate a church, it's, you know, going off to Ireland to become yeah. a vet and you know, perform cesareans on cows. The supporting performances, however, a bit more of a mixed bag. I mean, Timothy Spall, we both like him. And I think he's, he's got great. he's got great screen presence. His Irish accent does sort of wander. You know, he starts with saying, "I oh, can bring your daughter I, I back." I can hardly imagine him doing an Irish accent. He's not bad at the start. You know, he does say, "I can bring your daughter back for a short time," but not quite so threatening. Yes. And then it does sort of drift into his you know rather standard brogue. I mean, I don't know what what accent he does naturally, but no, yes. he does end up sounding like Timothy Spall, which is fine. But yeah. no, he he has the heft to carry himself. In in terms of the all the sort of the locals in and around this, the, the peripheral characters, they do end up a bit like the uh, the medium characters in Don't Look Now, where you have these two old women who can see into the future, and there's a lot of chest clutching involved, which you know, knows the I, I don't think it's you no know, Nicholas Rogue's best film, you know, but those are the moments in Don't Look Now and this which border on the ridiculous, and I think that if you're a fan of something like, do you remember seeing Hot Fuzz the first time around? Uh, yes. Do you remember yeah. the sequence where Simon Pegg stumbles upon the secret community, which you know, Timothy Dalton's heading up, and everyone murmurs about the greater good? Yes. Yeah. Well, it's it feel that when you go into the pagan ceremony, if you haven't seen Hot Fuzz, you'll enjoy it. But if you ha if you have, you might find yourself sniggering. When are they going to say the greater good? <laughs> the film finally gets into its stride in the third act when you have you know. They've spent three days with Alice and it's been fantastic and now they're faced with the reality that they have to let her go and she has to go back into the wakewood yeah. and go into the ground and they'll never see her again. However, the twist is, you know, fade down if you don't want to hear the twist, is that she was dead a little bit too long before they brought her back and now she doesn't want to go back to the grave. Oh dear. And she starts killing people. <laughs> so, you know, it, you take the ending of Don't Look Now in which you have you no know, Donald Sutherland running through the streets of Venice looking for the girl in the red dress who turns yeah. out to be a dwarf, not to give the ending of Don't Look Now way but it is nearly 40 years old and it sort of takes that and puts it on the opening of halloween so that, you know the symbol of the parents grief becomes this unstoppable force of murder and it's a, so you have you know following on from the theme of that it, grief is not just self-destructive it's destructive to those around you it's somewhat spoiled by the conclusion in which, no, Alice is persuaded to go back into the ground, but then her hand comes up and drags her mother down with it, <laughs> which is, you know, it's, it's a bit of a shock, but you kind of think, Dad was scared, but why did that happen? It feels like Hammer, though. Yeah, it is very much Hammer, and then there is a very, no, very creepy final sequence. Again, if you don't want to hear it fade down, because it's very, yes. but it is very good, in which the film flashes forward about a year, and um, you know, Patrick goes back to the wood to perform the same ritual, and he brings his wife back. And his, you know, his wife is, you know, is pregnant with a, with, you know, with their new child, you know, from yeah. beyond the grave. And then the film sort of pans forward, and there are sort of uh, surgical tools as if he's going to take their child before she goes back. And it's very, Ooh, what's going to happen? Yes. But no. So the ending, it, it's partially fudged, but it fudged, fudged, but it does redeem itself. Yeah. So to sum up, it's a modest but solidly made 
a little horror film which will achieve minor cult status in time and it's already getting little bits and pieces yeah. of recognition it's deeply generic in terms of you no know, its relationship with convention but it does take on its own identity and it does sustain a pretty good creepy atmosphere throughout it isn't perfect you can see all the shortcomings of having a low budget in plain sight but as a self-contained nuts and bolts 90-minute horror film it does bode well for the return of hammer and it sets the bar reasonably high for when we get the woman in black next year and welcome back hammer from the heart of the district this is lionheart radio oh a classic roy orbison pretty woman very nice um, you're going to tell us a story aren't yeah you? there's a little um horror related um anecdote to pretty woman um the guy who wrote the original screenplay for pretty woman was a guy called jd athens who started off his career as the the screenwriter of a very interesting b-movie called piranha women in the avocado jungle of death which starred um bill mayer or ma who's now an american talk show host and that's a very interesting little feminist fable in which you have a guy going into the um, no the the amazon jungle effectively and finding a sort of a uh, matriarchal tribe you know sort of you know women eating men hence the cannibal or piranha yeah. and but it's a feminist satire because they're arguing over whether no half the group wants to eat men with guava and the other half wants to eat them with avocado and they're sort of fighting <laughs> each other lovely so yeah check that out on dvd yes. if you get the chance i mean pretty you know kind of shows the trickle up yes. effect starting an exploitation and ends up in sort of mainstream rom-com great good next week's cult film is the fog yeah uh, our first john carpenter film in quite some time Yes, it is a while since we've had one of his on, isn't it? Mm. Let me just tell you before we move on to the new releases, the depressing bits, the final score from the Rugby World Cup. I'm afraid it's England 12, France 19. So England out of the Rugby World Cup. Oh. So that's going to be France against Wales in the first semi-final. England's two tries from uh, Foden and Mark Cueto. And, uh, well, lots of tries and penalties from France. We don't want to talk any more about that. No, we? let's move on. Right. I suspect we're not going to enjoy the first one. I certainly didn't enjoy it uh, previous rounds. That is Johnny English Reborn. Yeah, um, the longer waited, well, that's disputed, but uh, sequel to 2003's Johnny English, which was Rowan Atkinson's James Bond spoof, which, no, I think, like you, left me decidedly underwhelmed. I mean, yeah. I, I remember going to see that in Ellesmere Port when I was still living in Cheshire Mouse's screen. I was really looking forward to it because I was in my, you know, I loved Rowan Atkinson. I still do. But, yeah, it was very underwhelming, though. It had a very good tagline, though, which was, he knows no fear, he knows no danger, he knows nothing. <laughs> so that's that was the only inventive thing about it. Um, the original was helmed by Peter Howitt, who made Sliding Doors, so he had a bit of credibility, you know. When yeah, you that was a good film. Sliding yes. Doors is yeah, quite I did good. enjoy that. Yeah. yeah, one of Gwyneth Paltrow's best performances. In fact, I think her performance in that is better than her performance in Shakespeare in Love. Yes, which slightly we far-fetched plot, but it was good film. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like all. Yeah. This, on the other hand, is directed by Oliver Parker, who made the St. Trinian's reboots, and more recently did Dorian Gray, which was all right, but not up there with the 1945 version with George Sanders, which has got a fantastic painting in it. So the story is that no Johnny English is an incompetent agent for MI7. In the first film, if you remember, he was, you know, um, trying to stop um, John Malkovich's character called Pascal Sauvage from, you know, seizing the English throne and then turning the United yep. Kingdom into a prison. Yep. In this one, uh, there has been an assassination attempt on the Chinese premier, so they have to go and find him after he's been hiding out in, um, in, in a monastery somewhere, a bit like the start of the second Ace Ventura film. Um, do, you, do you remember the Ace Ventura film? No, films? no. no well, there's, a, there's a, a bit in the second one where Jim Carrey, um, his character, has he's let an animal fall in the opening credits to its death and then he has to go after a monastery and spend sort of two years coming to peace and then a guy has yeah. to go and find it to bring it back no it's not a good film let's not go there so 
in this version, like he's brought out of retirement to stop an attack on the Chinese premier, and then there's a story about you no know, conspiracies inside the KGB, and that's that's you no know, all not very important. Like I said, the original wasn't great. It was you no know, very slapstick heady, heavy, and decided you no. Know, it looked very much like it was designed for the export market, and it took bucket loads of money abroad. The thing about it is, that Rowan Atkinson is undoubtedly a brilliant physical comedian. I mean, obviously, you know, you look at things like Blackadder and not the 9 yeah. o'clock news in which he goes do the rubbery stuff from time to time, and of course, Mr. Bean. But even if you look back to his early stuff, I mean, um, do you remember the Secret Policeman's Ball series? Yes, I do, Do you remember yes. his act of, um, you know, playing the piano, or miming to play the piano, yeah. and uh, doing the conductor, which it's, it's, it's perfect physical comedy and very good timing, yeah. and he does come from the traditions of, you know, Buster Keaton and Charlie yeah. Chaplin and Jacques Tati, of, you know, doing sort of no, not very much in the way of speaking, but being very expressive in his physical. So there is, there is the potential for there to be, you know, a decent hour and a half worth of slapstick. Because bear in mind, in the case of Tatty's films, the plot was often secondary anyway to all the little jokes that sort of built up. The problem is that the film is very underpowered compared to Atkinson's talent. So for all the little bits in which you think, yes, now you're going to get into gear, the film then reigns it back with a very third-rate gag about him sort of dragging weights around by his nethers, yeah. or him sort of trying to get off with Rosamund Pike but failing miserably, or him sort of sinking in the chair. I mean, it, it looks like... Now, Rowan Atkinson had all these great ideas, and then they gave them to a writing committee who basically said, we don't like any of them, let's just write some stuff that six-year-olds will enjoy. So, it, young children will laugh at it in, just, you know, in terms of laughing at the physical jokes, and I dare say it'll take a lot of money abroad, but it's nothing to write home about. Yeah, so the only one of that genre I've ever taken to is Austin Powers. Yes, and in and the case... all the rest for me have failed, yes, one and way or another. Yeah, in the case of that, I mean, because the first Johnny English came out after the third Austin Powers film, and by the third you had, yes, you have done all the Bond jokes, now yes. by the time you get to you know, a dutchman with you no know, gold genitalia you really don't need to go any further yes but it was uh that they were classics absolutely which which you think is the best of the austin powers films uh for me the first one yeah yes, i think uh, so yes yes it was uh they, i mean they were all good fun to watch but uh, the first one for me mm -hmm. okay um it's a woody allen film yes midnight um, in paris yeah and in the past no a new woody allen film will be something to get very excited about but for the last 10 years he's kind of been up and down what's your favorite woody allen film Oh, I'll, I'll think about that one. Okay, <laughs> we come back to it. I mean, I really like Hannah and Her Sisters, which for which Michael Caine won his first Oscar and famously couldn't claim it because when he the Oscar ceremony was going on, he was filming Jaws 4 in the Caribbean. So you get the peak and the trough of his career within the space of 12 months. Um, so this... Having, having been off the boil for so long, having made all those films in London which looked like adverts for, no, no sort of, there's a London bus, there's the Gherkin, there's the Houses of Parliament. <laughs> yeah. Now he's getting right back on form. So the story is that Owen Wilson, although it's Owen Wilson being Woody Allen, is a successful Hollywood screenwriter who goes with his wife or girlfriend to Paris to get some inspiration. You know, he's, he's had a great career writing Hollywood scripts, but now he wants to sit down and write the great novel, the novel that will define his career. One night in Paris, uh, the clock strikes midnight, as it does every night, and he is whisked off in a car to a secret club where he meets figures from Paris's past, like Et Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway and Salvador Dali, as if he's gone back in time, and they <laughs> offer to critique his manuscript and say, yes, that's very interesting. And that's yes. Although they don't all speak in a French accent, because obviously Et Scott Fitzgerald was American. Um, 
It's Alan's best film in about five years. Certainly it's the best thing he's done since um, Vicky Cristina Barcelona with Scarlett Johansson and Penelope yeah. Cruz, which I really enjoyed. And it's a film very much about nostalgia, you know, about sort of the longing for the past and the view of the past. There, if, in terms of its, his previous output, it's closest to... Um, do you remember Play It Against Sam? Yes, In which, yeah. he, you know, the, the Woody Allen character gets advice on kissing girls from Humphrey Bogart. So yes. No, I think yeah. you need to kiss a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a bit like that in the sense that it's Alan looking back to all the kind of the writers that inspired him. And it, it's, it deals with the idea of whether nostalgia for the past is just a neurotic means of coping with the present and saying, you know, you're hankering for something that didn't exist to take your mind off the fact that actually you're quite insignificant and pathetic. You know, classic Woody Allen stuff where it's, it's personal neuroses, it's angst, it's sort of, you know, I can't do this anymore. But it does handle that subject matter in a way which is breezy and lovable and light-hearted. And, and Owen Wilson is on the best form he's been for quite some time. I mean... It's like his early work with Wes Anderson, before Wes Anderson went a bit up himself with the Darjeeling Limited. I mean, some people have made inaccurate comments saying, you know, it's, it's up there with sort of Manhattan and Hannah and her sisters. I don't think it's quite up there because it is rather frothy. And other people have said things like, well, the fact that Alan's making a film about nostalgia, about a screenwriter going back in time, means that he's sort of, he's falling into his own trap of saying, you know, I want to be the writer I was 20 years ago. But then again... I don't think that's entirely accurate because the way that Woody Allen writes is that he'll often, no, he, he famously tells a story about having a sack of jokes and then when he wants to write a new film he'll just pick one out that he wrote yeah. 20 years ago. I mean, you look at his last film but one, which was Whatever Works, which started, which he started writing in the 70s. So yeah. this may have been yeah. around for some time. It's not a masterpiece, but it's amusing and it's frothy and it's thoroughly enjoyable. No, it's a good date movie with a nice idea at the heart of it. So you uh, strongly recommend it? I do. I think it is his best film in five years. Great. Okay horror film for the next one don't be afraid of the dark okay um, very suitable for this month yes exactly um remake of the 1973 tv movie uh, this is written this is co-written and produced by guillermo del toro who directed chronos and pan's labyrinth which we'll come to directed by troy nixie who previously worked as an illustrator for neil gaiman neil gaiman who wrote things like the screenplay for stardust and Coraline, which was yeah. my one of my favorite films of 2009 if you haven't seen Coraline, go and rent it it's a fantastic children's film directed by henry selick you made uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Um, so the story follows a young girl whose parents, played by Guy Pearce and uh, Katie Holmes, they've split up. She's been sent to live with her father. He's an architect who is trying to renovate an old house. She starts hearing strange voices in the basement saying, come play with us. Come <laughs> play with us. So bits of The Shining, although obviously yeah. the TV movie precedes The Shining by quite some way. And it transpires that there are strange goblin-like creatures in the basement who want to claim her as their own. So no. Because of Guillermo del Toro's work on it, there is an intrinsic connection with Pan's Labyrinth, because what Pan's Labyrinth did was it took sort of old-fashioned fairy, childlike fairy tales and combined them with sort of the brutal reality. I mean, in that case, it was, you no know, the Spanish Civil War intercut with you know, sort of thorns yeah. and the... Did you see Pan's Labyrinth? Nah, no. No, there was, there's, there's a really terrifying sequence in that where there's a child-eating monster called the Pale Man who has eyes in the palms of his hands, and it is really, really scary. The problem with this is that it's not Pan's Labyrinth, and that, no, admittedly that's a high bar to set, yeah. but it is creaky, it is a bit hackneyed and hokey. It's, it's sort of pleasant in a nice old-fashioned way, in the sense of seeing all the tropes of old ghost stories and so forth, but it's not much more than that. I mean, I was watching... I mean, in terms of revisiting a genre, it's not up there, for instance, with, like, The Others, which took all the classic ghost stories, things like The Haunting and The Innocence, and sort of did them with better cinematography and uh, more religious insights. So it's not as good as either of those films. It's got good performances, but there's not much else to boast about. OK, our next one, quite a classy uh, cast list. June McGregor, Dennis Lawson, uh, Eva Green. Um, perfect sense. Yeah. Was it worth it? 
yes, by and large. Um, new film by David McKenzie, whom we actually talked about three weeks ago because of his film You Instead. And it's a case that he made that film last year, but it only just came yeah. out. This is his new one. It's an end-of-the-world film in which a virus is sweeping across the world, calling, causing people to become depressed, and then they lose their sense of smell. So Ewan McGregor plays a chef, and Eva Green plays a scientist who is investigating you know, the science of aroma, and they develop a relationship as all the world around them is falling apart. It's a very interesting, downbeat little science fiction drama. Now, the idea of being that, you know, as people lose their senses, they lose their memory as well, not just in the sense that they forget what something smelled like, but they forget who they are and yeah. know, what, who they think. And it does explore using the senses as a way of exploring mankind's inherent need to connect with one another. And it's, it's very much an ideas-driven film, and it's very refreshing to see that. In terms of what it refers to, I mean, there are big hints of things like Children of Men, because it's, you know, it's, a, it's an apocalyptic film with, you know, sort of... Yeah. And, and Ewan McGregor's character is quite close to Clive Owen's character in that film, in which, you know, Clive Owen's best performance. It's, in terms of its tone, it's also quite close to things like Never Let Me Go, which came out earlier this year, in which it was a film about, about clones, but it was more about the people sort of dealing with the fact that they were clones rather than any of the scientific issues yeah. around it. And there are also, I suppose, little hints of Julia's eyes, which we talked about earlier in the year. Very good performances. It does look very nicely shot for a low-budget indie film. I don't know how widely it's going to be distributed, but if it's showing at the Tyneside, you should catch it. Great. And the Never Art House one coming up now to run a saw. Yes. Uh, Directorial debut by Paddy Considine, who is a fantastic actor. Fantastic I mean, reviews it's getting. Absolutely. I mean, um, you, would, you, you probably would have seen... You would probably know Cuddy Constantine best from the Bourne Ultimatum because he plays yes. the Guardian journalist who gets shot yeah. at King's Cross. But he's also he's also worked prolifically with Shane Meadows. He was in Dead Man's Shoes. They did Ladonkin Scorsese together. Most recently, he was in Blitz. So the story is that um, Peter Mullen, who directed uh, Ned's earlier this year, but has also worked as an actor. He plays Joseph, who is a, a middle-aged old man who is plagued by violence and rage. And there is an opening sequence of him beating his pet dog to death, which is very gruesome. Mm. And one day, while while escaping from being beaten up by a gang, he runs into a charity shop run by Hannah, played by Olivia Coleman, who people may recognise from Peep Show and Green Wing from TV, and I think Green Wing's fantastic. Uh, she's a committed Christian. They develop a relationship and dark secrets but come out on both sides because it emerges that she's in an abusive she's in an abusive marriage, and her husband's played by Eddie Marsden, who was in Philip Ridley's Heartless not so long ago, so a very intense actor. It's very, very good, is the short way of saying it. I mean, Considine has made his name with you know, very gritty performances in which, particularly in the case of Dead Man's Shoes, it always feels like there is a real person there rather than just a cipher to get away with the violence that's on screen. It's a very tough film insofar as you know, the dog sequence at the open is deliberately repulsive and horrible, yeah. and it is a film about domestic violence, so no, it doesn't pull any punches. I think it's an 18th certificate. Um, it's hard to say that, no, people will go and see it and enjoy it in the same way that Kill List wasn't enjoyable. But like Kill List, there are ideas and real people at its heart. It is deeply uncomfortable and unnerving in the best possible sense. And if Constantine continues to live up to this, he's going to be a damn fine director. Well worth going to see. Absolutely. Uh, you may need to look hard to find it, I guess. I think the Tyneside is showing it, um, yeah. along with Perfect Sense, but you may have to travel otherwise. Right. And our final film this week, worth just dwelling on the cast list... Yes. Matthew Broderick, Jeremy Irons, uh, James Earl Jones, and on it goes. And Rowan Atkinson, of course. Yes. Who plays Zazu, because we're talking about The Lion King, which is being re-released in 3D. Um, so, Disney classic from 1994, which I think won a couple of Oscars, because it won for Best Original Song and um, yeah. possibly for Sound Design or something yes. like that. And I have to concur. Great film. Yeah, it is my favourite Disney film. Was it worth the effort of 3D? The short, we know yet. The short answer is no. I mean, before we go into the 3D, I mean, there, 
Do you know the sort of the story behind the the, the production controversies with the Lion King in terms no. of its play? I mean, no. Disney has often been accused of plagiarism. Yeah, and there was a lawsuit filed against the film when it first came out from this and the, the Japanese a Japanese production company who said that no, we made this thing called Kimba the White Lion in the late eighties, and you effectively saw that and nicked the whole thing and just put a little bit of Hamlet in it. There's a wonderful sequence in The Simpsons where. Um, they get um, the character of Bleeding Gums Murphy has died and he appears in the clouds like Mufasa. Yeah. And then it goes along with you know, all of James L. Jones' famous characters appearing and saying, oh, you must avenge my death, Kimba, Batman, Simba. And then you know, going down. That's, that's very funny. So I dare say people are familiar with the story. I dare say you know, many people have got it on DVD. Great. It's constantly. I've seen it live on stage. Fantastic. Brilliant it yeah, was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it does, it's what Disney do best, which is you know, old fashioned musicals, good story, yeah, proper characters, bright colours. stick to what they're good at. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the prompt. The, what I would say is that you don't need to see it in 3D. The reason it's being released in 3D is that it's a money spinner for Pixar because their newer 3D features have, I don't know, underperformed or at least haven't taken as much money in yeah. 3D screens as they wanted to. I mean, if you look back to before Toy Story 3 was released when they re-released Toy Story 1 and 2 in mm -hmm. 3D and just, it added absolutely nothing. You know, but you, the reason that those films worked the first time around is because they had great stories, because they were beautifully shot, because they had good characters yeah. and, the, and the plots were interesting and they were funny in the case of Toy Story. So with The Lion King in 2D it's really great in 3D it's darker because you're watching it through the glasses and yeah. all the great colors of the savannah are sort of drained out isn't it? yeah and it's less involving because of the fact that I'm constantly conscious of the fact that I'm watching this through glasses and I want to get involved but I can't so my yeah. advice is if you've got young kids who want to see the Lion King go see the first version go and see no go and rent no it's available on blu-ray now so you've got a yeah. blu-ray player go and get the new high-def DVD and watch it at home on a widescreen TV because it is breathtaking on widescreen yeah and it was really, really good on stage, I have mm. to say. Yeah. So, recommendations for this week? Uh, Tyrannosaur and uh, Midnight in Paris are the films of the week. Perfect sense you may have to travel for, but it does look very good. Right. So, a lot of good stuff out this week. Yes. Great. Well, thanks very much. My pleasure. We'll be back next Saturday between 10 and 11, and it's The Fog as our cult classic. Yes. Coming up later today here on Nine Hot Radio, Jerry G's going to be on between 12 and 5, so get those requests coming in. Laura Wilkinson will be on between 5 and 7. Second chance to hear Jerry G overnight, 10 o'clock, 1 o'clock and 4 o'clock. And then 7 o'clock tomorrow, it's Adam Wood is going to be on with his breakfast show 7 till 9. And then we've got Mike Whittingham's classic tracks between 9 and 11. So stay tuned to Lionheart Radio. Lots to keep you busy this weekend. Oh, thanks to Adam for texting in, by the way. It's always good to know he's listening to us down in... Yeah, I'm going to say Ashington, but I know it's not. But it's down that way somewhere. Yes, yes. <laughs> down in the nether, you know, the back of beyond. <laughs> we better... We better finish quickly at that point, hadn't we? <laughs> anyway, taking us out to the news, and then we'll probably have to just chat a little bit more because it's going to run a few seconds short. Oh, we had to have something from The Lion King, really, didn't Absolutely. we? Absolutely. And it is... Do you want to say it? Hakuna Matata, or No Worries. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.